Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and it's Star Wars Clone Week here on Weird House Cinema. We just did a, a week of regular episodes uh, concerning Star Wars on Tuesday and Thursday, and so we figured we would look into yet another ripoff of the George Lucas classic Star Wars. Uh, this will actually not even be the first Star Wars clone we're doing on Weird House Cinema, because a few months back we watched Message from Space, which I absolutely uh, adored. It was, you know, like many movies of the late seventies, a, a blatant ripoff of Star Wars. But it brought a lot of its own uh, weirdness and texture. I remember it had some really uh, beautiful, highly colorful costumes and great sets and stuff. Today we're looking at a dirtier, dustier, more drab attempt to rip off Star Wars uh, from of a more Italian persuasion. But this one's got a lot of pleasures of its own. Yeah. Now, uh, but before we get into it, I do want to speak just a little bit more about about the idea of the Star Wars ripoff because um, there's kind of this. Um, I mean, it's almost kind of like a wave effect through cinema after Star Wars comes out because the, mm-hmm. the 1977 original uh, film that is often known today as Star Wars: A New Hope, you know, it it really set the world on fire. It was it created this global phenomenon, but then it also it it opened the door for for various filmmakers to come in and in some cases, you know, just blatantly try and get in on the, the cash grab to, to get mm-hmm. some of that Star Wars energy and some of that Star Wars money. Um, other times it just allowed projects that would not have come to light to to actually take form, you know, like because the people with the money realized, hey, look, look at this. People are lining up to see stuff that's fantastic, stuff that's got space in it. Hey, what do we have lined up that has space in it? Um, and so I think sometimes and you see this with other um, other hits as well, like you'll see projects that that maybe at some point in their development they weren't as Star Warsy, but maybe they got Star Warsed up. Or you'll see a Star Warsy project that you know has a lot of knockoff elements in it, but then also some original ideas, or maybe ideas at least inspired by other properties in there. So uh, they're often really fun to look at because you never know exactly what you're going to find once you really immerse yourself in it. Once you sort of wade your way through the um, the initial like seaweed of just. Of just uh, um, you know utter Star Wars ness and get out into the uh, perhaps the more original aspects of the picture. Yeah, there are a few different things you can look at here. I mean, one is as you say, I think Star Wars helped uh, sort of uh, push the door wider open for big budget mainstream science fiction and fantasy. The you know the idea is okay, plenty of people in the public are hungry for this sort of thing. People went and saw Star Wars twenty times in the theater. You know, we, we can make big budget sci-fi and, and fantasy movies, and they can be a, they can be a huge hit. The other thing is, as you say. Movies that are not really Star Warsy in any sense, except it's, you get the feeling somebody was like, "Hey, what if we Star Warsed up this thing just a little bit?" So mm-hmm. one example of, that I think of that will will have several connections to today's movie is the James Bond film Moonraker from yes. 1979, uh, starring Roger Moore, the the driest and gooberiest of James Bonds, uh, and starring several cast members of the movie we're looking at today, which is in many respects just a bad James Bond movie. Like, it, it's very goofy. It, it, it's the James Bond movie where a pigeon does a double take. Um, but also, 
it has a space battle in the end of it there. And you just really get the feeling that somebody was like, Hey, could we, you know, could we like Han solo this up just a bit? So you've got Michael Lonsdale playing the villain Hugo Drax in Moonraker mm-hmm. and his soldiers go out on a spacewalk where they're shooting lasers at these, I think, I don't know, us or British soldiers who are space soldiers shooting lasers. I mean, uh, obviously no forces of the kind existed at this time, but, but I think they just wanted to get in on some of that Lucas magic. And, and this is, this is what we ended up with. Moonraker is a, is, is a bond film that there was a time in my life where I thought I would have said it was the worst bond film. I'm now at the point in my life where I can, without a shadow of a doubt, say it is the best bond film. (laughs) Yeah. And it will never be surpassed. It is one of the most rewatchable of Bond films because it is absolutely ludicrous and tonally all over the place in a way mm-hmm. that most James Bond movies aren't. I mean, the earlier James Bond movies, you know, they had a more uh, kind of realistic, sardonic, cynical edge, a kind of mean sense of humor and all that. Moonraker, it's like got this ridiculous, uh, hilarious subplot where Jaws, the assassin who mm-hmm. kills people by biting their necks, falls in love with a woman with braces. Yeah. Uh, but then on the other hand, it's got like really dark stuff in it. Like the villain kills people by sicking dogs on them. It's brutal. Oh, yeah. 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 Brutal dog scenes. Michael Lonsdale, who I love uh, in that um, mm-hmm. in, in, in everything, he would he would fit into this movie uh, that we're going to discuss today because Michael Lonsdale has that wonderful like low energy performance style mm-hmm. like um he he's in um he's been in many films over the years but he was in the uh, original film adaptation of the name of the rose playing the abbot and he's yes. great in that but he's so low energy there are times where i i can't quite understand what he's even saying he's practically mumbling but what if he should learn it of his own accord i don't know what you said michael <laughs> lonsdale but but i but i love it i still love your your energy I think you will find Mr. Bond that is a bit, is, is it short for blah Yeah. And it's like, what? I can't, I can't hear your, your villainous <laughs> monologue because it's just so, you're, you're hitting such a low energy level there. Yeah. Oh, but to come back to what you were saying earlier, speaking of low energy, we're, we should get to this Star Wars ripoff that we're looking at today because, of course, the other class of films is just movies that, blatantly rip off Star Wars. They're not like taking a pre-existing movie concept and trying to Star Wars it up a bit. Mm-hmm. They're instead uh, taking elements from Star Wars and saying, okay, if we were to directly rip off the Darth Vader suit, how could we write <laughs> a movie around a character who wears that suit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the that's the caliber of film we're dealing with today. It is 1979's The Humanoid. The humanoid. Yes. Uh, The basic elevator pitch here is in an attempt to overthrow the planet Metropolis, which is our planet, but in the future, the evil warlord Graal turns to a doctor with a recipe for the perfect super soldier, which you're probably saying that doesn't sound like Star Wars at all. Well, the the basic plot yeah, is not very Star Warsy, and we'll we'll get into what that means uh, here in a bit. Let's hit some of that trailer audio. Benvenuto a Noxon, mio onnipotente signore. Shut down! Satanam! All 
All right. Now, I'm not sure how much we really got out of that trailer audio, because I think given our choices, that was either mostly all music or that was in Italian. <laughs> we'll see what, what we were able to pull together. I think I found a trailer that had some English narration, but maybe it's not original. I don't know. We'll we'll work that out in post. It, it'll depend. Okay. You, you've already heard it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's one, this is one of those films where um, it, it's, it's, I was having trouble finding the trailer, but mm-hmm. I, what I would find on YouTube is just uploads of the entire film, uploads that have been right. on YouTube for, you know, uh, half a decade or so, or, 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 you know, approaching 10 years in some cases. Yeah, uh, they, they do not have their lawyers on the case of the humanoid. Yeah. Now, as we get into the connections on this movie, there's something that you should know from the get-go, which is that this movie has extensive Roger Moore-era Bond overlap. Mm-hmm. It has no less than three major cast members who were in back-to-back Roger Moore-James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a fun exercise in, in, in looking at the like the Moonraker casting, especially. Okay, so who directed this thing? All right, so this was directed by Aldo Lado. Um, accredited, I believe, as George B. Lewis, which sometimes <laughs> it's argued that that was because it kind of sounds like George Lucas. I don't know. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> it's he, like the, they were trying to do the Transmorphers thing. What is that called? Yeah. These Asylum Studios? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, but anyway, uh, Aldo Lado, um, Lado was born in 1934. I will say this. Uh, this is We look at a lot of films, and certainly some older films, too, where like everybody's dead, or most of the people were dead. I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised at how many folks are still kicking from this one. I don't know if the, they were, they were um, you know, getting some of that uh, Iron Maiden Fountain of Youth uh, sci-fi juice from the, the plot of this film, but uh, a lot of folks are hanging in there that were involved in this. Anyway, uh, Lado uh, was an Italian writer and director, perhaps best known, at least in some circles, for writing and directing Short Night of Glass Dolls from 1971, um, a horror movie that also featured Barbara Bach, who we'll get to in a bit, who is in this. And he also did an assortment of thrillers for TV and cinema. Mm -hmm. I'm not really super familiar with this guy. But there's a guy we're coming up on that that fans of Weird House Cinema will recognize. Yeah, so apparently Enzo G. uh, Castellari... Did some uncredited directing on this. Now, he was born in 1938, still alive as of this recording, and um, he apparently did the opening assault sequence in this film. We've mentioned him on the show before because he directed 1983's Warriors of the Wasteland, 82's 1990 The Bronx Warriors, and 1983's (laughs) Escape from the Bronx, all wonderful Italian post-apocalyptic films. He also did 1981's The Last Shark, starring Vic Morrow. Who was in Message from Space. Yep. The Last Shark is a a Jaws ripoff, essentially, in which Uh Vic Morrow plays... um, uh, uh, What's the character from uh, from Jaws? The old old guy. Quint. Yeah, he essentially plays Quint. And then he, uh, uh, Castellari also directed The Inglorious Bastards from 1978. So Castellari has been mentioned on this show before because we talked about him in the episode Hands of Steel, where he, mm-hmm. there, I think there was uh, extensive overlap with his work there. I don't know. Did he actually work on Hands of Steel or did it just have a lot of his regular actors in it? I, th- I think it, it was just the connection to uh, George Eastman and also the connection to the music of, um, of Goblin. And, um, okay. Yeah. I think, th- I think that was the main thing. I don't know that we've actually covered an Enzo G. Uh, Castellari picture on Weird House, or at least not yet, but hopefully we'll get to one. Le ultimo squalo. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, there are various writers involved in on this one, uh, but I'm just going to mention in, in passing that uh, Adriano Balzani was on here, who lived 1919 through 2005. Um, he was also one of the writers on 1964's A Fistful of Dollars, what? Uh, a spaghetti Western classic. Now, there's a term I'd never come across before, but it makes sense because I think there were a number of Italian Star Wars clones in the late 70s. And that term was uh, it was actually on a website that we were both looking at. Uh, the term is Spaghetti Star Wars. Ha! Well, I, I I missed that. I was looking at that website, but I missed that term. Uh, I think that would be be accurate. Spaghetti Star Wars. I like it. Now, getting into the actual cast, we should introduce the the real star of this film. You want somebody with just like unbeatable charisma, a screen presence that that sucks you in, and and you're hanging on their every word. And so, who'd they get? They got Richard Keel, who played Jaws in the James Bond movies. Yeah, and this isn't just a case where we're we're most familiar with him, and so we're saying he's the star. No, they said he's the star. He had yeah. top billing. Like, he's the star of yeah. this picture. Uh, I mean, he'd gotten top billing in something before. I think he got top billing in EGA. Yeah, yeah, and that was years earlier. That was 1962. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, Richard Keel, uh, who lived 1939 through 2014. Uh, so he's a, he's a giant of a man. He... He had the medical condition uh, acromegaly uh, and thus attained a height of 7'2 in his life, which in show business, that's like being nine feet tall. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you see you see people who are like six, eight. And if you if you don't put their their coworkers on uh, Apple boxes, then they're uh, you know, they come off like giants. But but Keel was a, an extremely tall man. And he also had a very signature look. You know, that um, in part due to his condition, that certainly played well with monster makeup, though I think Mm -hmm. it's also fair to say that he was still a very handsome guy by most standards. Yeah, I'd say he especially looks good with a beard, which they give him in part of this film, but not the whole thing. And the beard is like an on off switch that indicates in this movie whether he's in regular human mode or in humanoid mode. Yeah, so he gets to play both in this, which is kind of fun because a lot of times mm-hmm. he was playing monsters and 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 and, and heavies, you know. Uh-huh. And in this, he does get to play the snarling monster, but he also plays this likable, big, kind of goofy, bearded guy, you know. And uh-huh. I'm not saying that that that's where Keel's acting strength was, but but he's still it's kind of neat to to watch him. Oh, he's yeah. I'd never seen him playing just like a regular guy before. But in the parts of this movie where he's just, you know, he's just some space trucker. He's just a regular dude out there in a spaceship. He He's quite likable, actually. He's not yeah. uh, again, as I was joking. I mean, he's not somebody who has natural like screen charisma, but he's, he's he comes off as sweet, likable. You know, you yeah. would be friends with this dude. Yeah, and I, we do have to, again, stress his importance in the Bond movie uh, series because he he played Jaws in two films, not only Moonraker, but also The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977. So they brought him back. Uh, you know, you see that, of course, with Bond himself and some of Bond's auxiliary characters and, you know, occasionally with a main villain like uh, like uh, Blowfield uh, comes back over and Blowfield? over again. Blowfield? Is it Blowfield? Blowfield. Blowfield. <laughs> I, I don't know. The bald guy. It's been yeah. a while since I've watched him. The guy, the guy with, with the, the cat. cat. cat the man. guy who is sometimes Donald Pleasance, but also many times... Um, sadly, not Donald Pleasance. Sometimes he's Charles Gray. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, when he was Charles well, Gray, well, I like <laughs> Charles Gray was pretty good. I mean, Charles I guess they Gray. tend to have good actors play him, but still, Pleasance was the was the best. 
The weird thing is, I feel like how much I enjoy the actor playing Blofeld is directly correlated to how silly the actor playing Blofeld is. So I really, <laughs> I really like the silly ones. I like Donald Pleasance. I like Charles Gray. Uh, I think I like Telly Savalas when. when oh, he yeah, play, yeah, yeah. T- Telly was a different type of, uh, of villain, but I liked him. Who, who plays him in the newer ones? Oh, well, they got Christoph Waltz to play an oh. inspector, which would have been great casting if the role had been written well, but that movie was just a snooze fest. Mm. Inspector, I don't know if you saw it. I, I, I have not it, seen it, no. I found it incredibly boring, uh, not very good at all. But, 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 Christoph Waltz, great casting choice if you give him something interesting to do. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a new Bond film since Casino Royale. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, I like it. Mads was great in that. Um, yeah. My advice is stick with the odd numbers. Uh, skip okay. Quantum of Solace, see Skyfall, that one's good, skip Spectre. Okay, good to know. Uh, of course, all of these movies, I think I can just safely say, they needed more Jaws. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, um, you know, Jaws hasn't, hasn't been around in a Bond film for a while. I don't think they've quite decided to bring him back, though they've kind of echoed that sort of um, second-in-command heavy, I think, in some of the more recent ones as well. Who would be the new Jaws? I mean, it's hard to do. I mean, you, what do you, mm. you? Certainly, there are other big guys you could you could hire to to be a new version of Jaws. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, the thing is, Keel had that magic. I mean, you could you could get you know various super big wrestlers to step in and play the role. But I don't know. Keel was likable, and I think that's one of the things that that shines through in Moonraker. Like they clearly realize, let's bring this guy back, and people like him, and he looks. You know, he's kind of a gentle, he has this gentle giant vibe. Let's lean into that. Let's have him fall in love with a girl in braces on a spaceship. Oh, I mean, it's a classic evolution of a villain character across a multiple film arc, because when he comes in in Spy Who Loved Me, he's actually rather menacing. I mean, he murders people in a way that's kind of creepy. Um, They're not playing him for laughs yet. But as with the arc of, say, Freddy Krueger, he becomes more a source of comedy as as the films go on. Yeah. Why didn't he get a spinoff? That's that's the thing that gets me. Oh, my God. Agent Jaws. He goes to, <laughs> <laughs> he goes to work for MI6. He becomes like 002 or whatever. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. they send him on missions where he always ends up biting the bad guy's neck. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he could be 0014 since he's oh. twice as tall. I don't know. Oh, very good. Um, so anyway, Keel was in uh, many other things as well. We already mentioned Ega from 62. He was the alien, uh, I believe it was, Canimate from the mm-hmm. classic Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man, which I know is one of your favorites, Joe. Oh, yeah. But he also did a ton of TV work. Like, he was just popping up on everything. Like, he'll pop up on Gilligan's Island. Uh, so anytime you needed a, a giant or a likable big guy, there's a chance that Richard Keel would uh, wander into the shot. I know he was cast in this movie so they could have him turning into the humanoid and, and hulking out, but I, I would have enjoyed having more of the movie with him in regular mode with his cute little robot friend, because in this movie, he's got a robot dog that is adorable. Yeah, yeah. I love that robot dog. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit in a bit in a, in a, in a second here. Uh, but l- let's move on to some of the other uh, actors in this film. The next one is also a Bond connection. It's the actor uh, Corrine Cleary who was born in 1950, still alive as of this recording, plays the the space character, the sci-fi character, Barbara Gibson. <laughs> it's great. I love how this movie has a scene where a character named Lord Grawl sends his forces to kill Barbara Gibson. 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> it reminds me of when Darth Vader took out his lightsaber to go assassinate the Jedi Master Fred Nelson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, this is this is not the Lucas approach to naming characters. This is not even the David Cronenberg approach to, to naming characters. I, I was thinking Barbara Gibson sounds like the ne- the name that a child would give their imaginary friend if that imaginary friend were like a stereotypical adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, Clary was uh, she was in Moonraker as well as the story of O from 1975 and Your the Hunter from the Future from 1983. Your Hunter from the Future is an all time great leather diaper barbarian movie. It, yes, yeah, it's, and it will it, come up again. It is it is connected in several ways to this picture. It's one of the best ludicrous barbarian movies because. It is simultaneously a Conan ripoff and a Star Wars ripoff. So it stars the guy from Space Mutiny, Reb Brown, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Blast Hard Cheese. And he's wearing the leather diaper and running around like killing dinosaurs with a hammer. But then at the end of the movie, he has to fight Darth Vader. (laughs) All right. The next character, Leonard Mann, plays Nick. Born 1947, uh, American actor who was also in 87's Flowers in the Attic and 1981's Night School, in addition to a number of Italian productions. He's going to be our Han Solo for this movie, but a really sort of uh, faded, washed out solo. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our Darth Vader in this picture is Lord Grawl, uh, played by Ivan Razumov, who lived uh, 1938 through 2003, an Italian actor who played a lot of heavies. He was in Mario Bava's 1965 sci-fi classic Planet of the Vampires. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah wonderful style. Uh, that, that's one we might have to come back to on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in Sergio Martino's 1972 movie All the Colors of the Dark. We've mentioned that one before. That's a Jallo movie that I've seen. I recall thinking that one was kind of interesting, though. Like, uh, like pretty much all Jallo, it's 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 vile trash. I think, but it's. Uh, I, I recall it being about like a woman who thinks she's being pursued by a coven of Satanists somewhere in England, but then there's a twist. Yeah, I love the title. It's you know, slightly nonsensical, but, it, yeah. but I like it. And then uh, uh, he was also in uh, Mario Bava's 1977 film Shock, and just various other Italian productions. Now, that character has a brother in this uh, picture played uh, by Massimo Serrato, and the character's name is just Great Brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, uh, this actor, Serrato, lived 1916 through 1989, Italian actor. He was in Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Uh, that was the main picture that jumped out at me. Oh, man. Have you uh, seen that one? I haven't, but I know oh. it's, it's very well regarded. Yeah, that one's a classic uh, horror movie. Very uh, opposite end of the spectrum from the goofiness we're talking about here. That one's like very weird, but also like uh, uh, deep, emotionally powerful, dark. Yeah, that that one's uh, don't screw around with that one. Like put yourself Mm -hmm. in the right state of mind if you're going to watch it. Okay. Now, the next uh, actor and the next character here, uh, this is pretty exciting because uh, it's a a very esteemed actor. Kind of slumming it up, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, collecting a paycheck uh, in this Italian Star Wars film. Uh, The actor is Arthur Kennedy, and he plays our our second tier villain, our mad scientist villain, Dr. Craspin. Arthur Kennedy is fantastic in this. He Mm -hmm. you can tell he like all of the roles in this film, it's underwritten, but you can tell he is doing his best to chew the scenery, even though there's not a whole lot to chew on. Yeah, in a film that is just packed with low energy performances, you know, and and 
you know, poor writing and just, just stuff that just falls flat. Mm-hmm. Yet Kennedy ha- brings the most energy to his performance. At times, he's he's snarling like a mad dog, uh, and uh, and it really stands out in a picture again where everybody else is really almost quaaludic in their performance. Yeah, I would say one of the main characteristics of the acting in this film is that it's almost as if the director, you know, you've heard the the story that um, <laughs> what George Lucas would say to people on the set of Star Wars was like faster, louder, more intense in their yeah. line deliveries. In this case, the director was just always telling people, I don't want you to emphasize any particular word <laughs> in this sentence. They should all sound exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like, bring it down a notch. Yeah. (laughs) So Arthur Kennedy, uh, American actor of stage and screen, who won a 1949 Tony Award for his role in the original stage production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Wow. He was a five-time Oscar nominee. Um, He was in such major films of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s as Lawrence of Arabia, Bright Victory, Peyton Place, and Champion. He was, uh, this was only, this was just one of the last four films he did at the very end of his career mm-hmm. uh, but he had a, had a pretty long history now I, I don't know how how well he is remembered by today's movie going audience um, like especially if you look at the the Oscars he was nominated for he lost in all the all those cases to actors who I think had more star power and more staying power um, at least in the public memory but but he was a real talent and again he is just clearly light years ahead of, of any other actor in this film. Agreed. A good casting decision. I did read that they initially wanted Donald Pleasance for this role. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, which, uh, yeah, Pleasance would have been perfect for this role. He was in a lot of uh, other, um, you know, uh, international pictures, though, where he played this sort of thing, like the evil oh. guy in a funny costume. Oh, but he would have been absolutely on tone for the yes. rest of the acting in this film, because Donald Pleasance, one of the weird things about him is that he has striking monotone delivery so often. Yeah, almost almost always. It's rare. There are some there there are some films you'll find where he plays a more high energy character, uh, but generally, yeah, he was he was very much in that Michael Lonsdale school of uh-huh. low key performance. But in a different, with the kind of more nasal version, I, I remember the main line of his that illustrates this is in uh, Escape from New York when he plays the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and he gets into that escape pod egg to get out of his airplane. Yep. And he says something like, may God have mercy on you all. <laughs> Yeah, he oh he's good in that one. Uh, so yeah, uh, he would have he would have been right on on the same page with all the other actors in this. But no, I, I think it's good that they got Arthur Kennedy. He mixes it up. You get the sense that Arthur Kennedy can like tell apart the different parts of speech in a sentence when he says them. It, it, it's nice. Yes. <laughs> now uh, his his character has sort of a companion villain. We'll get into the details in a bit. Lady Agatha, played by Barbara Bach. Born okay. 1947. This was the Bond girl from The Spy Who Loved Me from 77. Right. She plays a Soviet spy who comes up against Roger Moore in The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me is a little bit, I mean, all the Roger Moore movies are goofy. The Spy Who Loved Me is a little bit less goofy than Moonraker. Um, and so there's some spy versus spy action in uh, in The Spy Who Loved Me, where she's the she sort of starts off as a villain, but then of course they end up falling in love, as as always happens. But I, I recall her being actually pretty good in that Bond movie. In this, uh, I mean, she's great in the role because she like wears these these unbelievable wigs well and stuff. But mm-hmm. I I gotta say, abs like the flattest delivery I have ever heard of any line delivery at all in this film. 
Right. So it, it basically it fits the the tapestry of this movie well. Yeah. Um, but she was in a lot of th- things back in the day. She was in Sergio Martino's Screamers from 1979 that I've mentioned several times here. Uh, Force 10 from Navarone from uh, uh, from 78. And also a film that I think you have told me about, Joe, Black Belly of the Tarantula from 1971. Oh, yeah. That's another uh, Giallo movie. It's a, one of these uh, slashery, trashy Italian murder mysteries. But this one has a really good cast. She has, I, I think, a smaller part in it. The main character in that one is actually played by Giancarlo Giannini, and he's wonderful. Hmm. Now, a, a bit character in this that I'm just going to mention quickly is uh, Hal Yamanuchi, who was born in 1946, uh, Japanese-born actor who plays just humanoid soldier in this. So it's a very bit part. But uh, this is an actor that shows up in a ton of Italian and international pictures. He's also been in such films as The Wolverine, The Life Aquatic, Zoolander 2. He's been in over 100 films and was in several films from uh, the likes of Sergio Martino and Enzo G. Castellari. He began his career as a mime. He translated and dubbed Japanese-language films into Italian. And he was even in Stuart Gordon's Robot Jocks from 1990, which, to remind everybody— our, our favorite Battling Robots film here was, uh, I believe it was at least a, an Italian co-production. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I had forgotten that fact about it. Now, I was not on the lookout for, for Hal in this. So where do you remember what part of the movie he shows up? I, I never saw him, uh, or if okay. he showed up, I missed him. He might have been in one of those uh, those fabulous sort of Stormtrooper costumes that we see. I'm not entirely sure about that. <laughs> okay. But he has a very distinctive face. You can look him up on IMDb, and you, you might well recognize him and go, oh, that guy. Yeah, I've seen oh, him okay. in things for sure. I'll have to look him up after this. Now, you, we mentioned you're the hunter from the future earlier, mm-hmm. and the director of that, Antonio Margaretti, was the special effects supervisor in this film. Now, that would make sense of something that I caught here because I was watching this movie and I noticed a reused costume. The humanoid (laughs) has costume overlap with your Hunter from the Future. Now, as I mentioned, your is a very strange movie because it it's, you know, it's put genres in in a particle collider where it's part Conan the Barbarian with Reb Brown from Space Mutiny playing Conan, but like less smart. And then the villain is just straight up Darth Vader and he has stormtroopers who work for him. Mm-hmm. And so the stormtroopers who work for the Darth Vader in your wear the exact same costumes as some of the stormtroopers in this movie. And I've attached some pictures for you to look at, Rob, so mm-hmm. you can see that I'm telling the truth. Yep, I, I looked at these earlier, and it is the same costume. It, or at least the same mask. Mostly the same costume, I think. I don't know if I'd actually recommend people try to watch your, but I would recommend everyone listen to the theme song of your Hunter from the Future. Seth, can we get a little clip of that? Those are the sounds of yours world. Well, since we're talking about music, let's talk about the music in this film, because uh, this may come as a shock, given everything that we said. But the score for The Humanoid is by none other than Ennio Morricone. Ennio Uh, Morricone? How is it? Okay. Rob, I feel like you're, you're somebody, I respect your like all-encompassing enthusiasm for electronically based music. Because it seems to me, usually if a movie score is electronic, you're going to give it a lot of latitude and you're, you're giving yourself space to love it. And I mm-hmm. appreciate that about you. I, I, 
I wanted to love this because I do love <laughs> Ennio Morricone, but I thought the music in this movie was terrible. It had that 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 theme that kept playing over and over that sounded like I don't know. It sounded like uh, like the trophy ceremony music at the Olympics or something, but uh-huh. but synthed up. Um, it, I I readily admit that the music in this is kind of all over the place. Uh-huh. Um, but there but the synthier parts of it. Uh, which uh, I, I think we're going to play a sample of here in a minute. The mm-hmm. synthier parts of it uh, really struck a chord with me, in part because they remind me a lot of um, of some elements that pop up in the early work of um, of the electronic duo Boards of Canada. Oh, um, okay. Particularly some stuff on Music Has a Right to Children, their uh, their their classic album. And I I actually went down a rabbit hole of like listening back to Boards of Canada tracks because I, I was curious because I also was like, well, maybe it was a mix or some of their very early stuff. Like maybe they actually utilized a sample from mm-hmm. this uh, score. I know that I know they were inspired by a lot of different elements, and I I imagine Morricone was was in the mix uh, for them. Uh, as far as I can tell, though. Yeah, there are just some things that kind of sound similar in some Boards of Canada films. I don't know if there's a direct connection there or just they were kind of breathing the same synthetic ambiance. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, but it, it does remind me a lot of, of some moments in Boards of Canada's work. There's even some visual tie-in because toward the mm-hmm. end of the movie, there's a part where I was enjoying the cheesy synth score. And they were like flying off into the sunset with a color scheme that looked very much like Boards of Canada art. Yeah, yeah. So now that we're talking about it, let's go ahead and have just a sample from this, uh, Seth. Uh, this would be the uh, the track. Um, I believe this is uh, Infanzia Evolutione e Ritorano. Rit- Ritorno. <laughs> um, rit- Ritorno, yes. Uh, this is off the soundtrack for The Humanoid by uh, Morricone. See, I, I really like that. I, I think that, uh, like I say, it strikes a chord with me. And um, okay, it, okay, it it pro- that the little ditty that we heard there is probably like responsible for seventy five percent of my enjoyment of this film. Well, uh, I want to meet you halfway on this because while I do still think the music was surprisingly terrible, I mean, Ennio Morricone is an amazing film film composer. I mean, he did the film, he did the music for The Thing, which like several Carpenter movies, I mean, John Carpenter is a great director, but he has a number of movies that in a way are just made by the score, mm-hmm. you know, like his own score for, for Halloween, I think makes the movie, you take that music out of the movie, the movie isn't half as good. I mean, it's still good, but you know, th- that that's what pushes it over the edge. Similar thing for Morricone's music in The Thing, like that dun dun thing that, that drives mm-hmm. the feeling of the movie. It defines the whole tone yeah yeah absolutely um another couple of morricone and again there's so many morricone scores i think he uh, i i mean it was i think it's hundreds of things that he did 400 scores on the big and small screen i believe is the number i saw Mm -hmm. but uh, a couple that really stand out you have the good the bad and the ugly from 1966 just really iconic work and then 1986 the 1986 film the mission which is a, a beautiful and tragic, just a wonderful film. Probably, it's got to be one of my top, like, serious oh. motion pictures. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen that one. Oh, it has uh, Jeremy Irons, it has um, Robert De Niro, and it's about missionaries uh, in South America. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's a beautiful, tragic story. And uh, oh. it has this beautiful score. I mean, the, the mission 
sound the score by Morricone is just absolutely breathtaking. You've probably heard some something from it, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, yeah, I, I I can't do it justice. I can't properly explain okay, it. But okay. the mission is a wonderful movie, and the soundtrack is amazing. Okay, well, I, well, I owe you watching that one. But I also said I was going to meet you halfway about the Morricone score, which is okay. that while I don't. I don't think the the movie is well served by the melodies composed as like full music pieces for uh-huh. this movie. I do like the individual sounds and I can see how the sounds from the score of this movie could be well used as samples in electronic music. Yeah, yeah. And uh, apparently it has resonated there. I was reading that the two, in 2003, the German electronic uh, group Computer Jockeys, one word, not a group I was familiar with, but they apparently did a reworking of the track A Man in Space from the score for this movie. You know, we were also looking at a very odd website uh, that is I, – I don't know how exactly to describe it. It's like it's like a fan website for the humanoid and for Richard Keel that was mm-hmm. – looks like it was made in 1998. Yeah, and, and hasn't it doesn't seem to have changed, uh-huh. uh, which I love. Uh, so I do recommend checking that out. What's the web address for that? Okay, so we just had to look it up. It's Golob the Humanoid, G-O-L-O-B, uh, GolobTheHumanoid.com. And it has a page on it that's all about, like, music that has been made as, uh, like, pop fan music about the humanoid. Mm-hmm. So they've got one song on there that you can download by uh, a, a band called Ganymede that I was not otherwise familiar with, but it's about the humanoid. And I think there's other music, too. So the humanoid, you know, it really gets under people's skin. It inspires. It makes it, you know, gets those creative juices flowing. You're right. It's just an inspiring motion picture. Can you guess, listener, can you guess how this movie begins? (laughs) What we see on the screen at the beginning of the film? Could it be that there is a star field with some nebulae in the background and then a text crawl that (laughs) rolls from the bottom of the screen to the top? It's true. That is how it starts. And so what we get is uh, a text crawl with, I can't remember, is it narrated as, I think it is because I think the text is actually in Italian and uh, gets narrated in English. So Uh, So we get it read to us and we hear Metropolis, known ages ago as planet Earth, now faces its gravest hour. Lord Grawl has just escaped from the prison satellite where his brother, ruler of the peaceful galactic democracy, had exiled him. Malevolent and power hungry, Grawl has plans of vengeance that might forever alter the destiny of mankind. (laughs) Very good, because I love how it starts with the prison satellite, as if you already know what that is. You know, it's it's also telling because, you know, from the very beginning in Star Wars, when when the text uh, moves across the screen, we we already have a sense of a large universe, you know, mm-hmm. and not all the details are filled in. There's a lot of stuff that is developed later, but but we get the idea that this is a an expansive, uh, fantastic world. And in this picture, we already get an idea of a small world. Like everything mm-hmm. feels yeah. small, uh, n- n- despite its Star Warsiness. That's a very good point. I mean, yeah, just the text in Star Wars makes you feel like the the galaxy is big, a lot of stuff is happening, and we're coming in right in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. This text suggests. This world is boring, not much is happening, and we're starting here at the beginning before things even really ramp up. 
Yeah, and our fantastic location in space is Earth in the future. Yeah. Like, the way things start in this movie is not with crisis, but with peaceful galactic democracy. And the opening text tells you, uh, there's a guy who's maybe about to mess that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, right at the beginning, we get spaceships zooming, because again, this is a Star Wars ripoff. And I, I will say, more so than Message from Space or even Star Crash, those are both uh, Star Wars clones that we've talked about before and, and have their own charms. This movie does way more direct ripping off of set pieces from Star Wars, just blatant ripoffs of shots and sets and costumes from the movie. Yeah, like uh, in Message from Space, the star, the starships, they all they all looked different, and they they had kind of a cool look, and the models were very well done. Mm-hmm. But man, this just like a straight up star destroyer in this yes, thing. Yes, this one just starts with the star destroyer sliding in right over the camera, like the opening <laughs> shot of Star Wars. Yeah, I know that shot gets copied in a lot of movies, but this one is the most blatant that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's it's about as spot on as you could get without just actually using a model of a star destroyer or or just ripping the the footage. Yeah, and the the model they use is close enough. Like you, you know, if you if you were squinting, you might mistake it. Yeah. And so uh you know, we we get the star destroyer coming in. I think we're to assume already that Lord Grawl is on this ship. I don't know why we know that, but that that's just implied and okay, yeah, we we get it. Darth mm-hmm. Vader was on the star destroyer, Lord Grawl's on this thing. Uh and we see a smaller ship approach the star destroyer. It, it looks like it's some space cops or something and they radio and they're like, "Hey, who are you? What's up?" and then the star destroyer just annihilates it, blasts mm-hmm. it. Uh, and then we get the the monologue of Lord Grawl. Before we see him, we hear him, uh, I guess he's like talking in his head. He goes, those pilots were sheep, not soldiers. My brother has made his army bloated with peace. <laughs> uh, you know, and this reminds me, there are actually people who have had mentalities like this in history that like, uh, you know, war is what makes people strong and peace makes people soft. It, it's even infected uh, American thinking at times. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, Teddy Roosevelt at some points in his life was somewhat susceptible to this kind of thinking like, oh, you need a good war to make your culture strong. Mm. And this is Grawl's philosophy as well. Yes, yes, it is. But then we see him. And oh my God, this Darth <laughs> Vader dude, Lord Grawl, I, I don't even know where to start. He's got belts over his face. And he so it's not a full Darth Vader mask. It is a Darth Vader helmet and like Darth Vader kind of black leathery looking shoulder pads. And the rest of the suit is very Vader-esque. But instead of the robot face of Vader, we get a crucifix of black belts over the face. Yeah, this uh, this discount Darth Vader costume, I think in many ways helps illustrate just how well the actual Darth Vader costume was designed mm-hmm. and brought to life. For instance, Darth Vader's helmet contains elements of the skull, of a samurai helm, of an insect, of a, of a robot. Uh, but it hits all of these notes in ways that don't overwhelm you. Uh, you know, like there's a perfect alchemy to the way these elements come together in Darth Vader's helmet, and that's why it's become this just iconic symbol. But this design, Grawl's outfit, it leans way too heavily on, first of all, the samurai motifs. Like, mm-hmm. it's clearly just an just a, a shiny samurai helmet that, you know, they painted black. Yeah. And then he has that weird face shackle across his face that kind of looks like it's it kind of looks like he's a punishment, you know? Like, it's yeah, kind yeah. of like they've put his face in a gibbet, or that Lord he's Grawl. A, he got into the cookie jar and they're like, put on the punishment helmet. Yeah, like it has that man in the iron mask kind of a feel to it. It just it just uh-huh. comes off as weird. 
Lord Grawl is sorry. Can I take the belts off? <laughs> so they're approaching Metropolis, which, as we've already been told, is planet Earth. I guess it's just Earth in the future. And, and Barth Quater here sends out an attack ship that is piloted by a guy in a uh, in a Yor helmet, you know, the, the ones that are also in Yor. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, he says, make sure there are no survivors, especially that Barbara Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah i just love it lord grawl has put a hit on barbara gibson yeah barbara gibson and then we meet barbara gibson and this is kareen clary uh she's working at a place called the institute the institute is one of those places from you know 70s and 80s sci-fi movies where everybody wears kind of billowy clothes Uh, i don't know what you call the texture of that fabric but you know it's like princess leia's dress Mm -hmm. everybody's just dressed like that uh, and it's on a planet that I think is supposed to look like Tatooine from Star Wars. This is another one of the things that it, we should get into this in more depth as we go on. But like, I was interested in, okay, when movies are trying to rip off Star Wars, what are the elements they rip off? Because they don't usually copy the overall story structure or anything like that. Instead, they copy specific aesthetic elements like Darth Vader's suit and the desert planet Tatooine. All of these Star Wars ripoffs have a desert planet like this with white earthen buildings. Yeah, and I think, so if, if memory serves, I don't have the, the, the figures in front of me here, but I believe they filmed this in Italy, but also a little bit in Israel. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure in, in any of these desert scenes, if we're looking at um, at Italian landscape or or we're, we're looking at, uh, at Middle Eastern uh, landscape. But uh, I would guess this is Israel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I will say these are neat locations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they look interesting and they feel... They kind of feel suitably alien, even if we're not actually on an alien world, yeah. if this is just Earth. But uh, I, I I liked it enough. Uh, I was wondering, though, so it's an institute. What do they study at this institute? Everything. Yeah, everything. Okay. It's the place of knowledge. And so Barbara Gibson is hanging out at work, and then she gets a video call from a child who pops up on the video screen. We learn that the child's name is Tom Tom. And Tom Tom tells her that she must leave the Institute and come home at once. And so you think, okay, how is he going to convince her to leave? But he doesn't need to do any convincing. It's almost like the video call, the child hypnotizes her with like secret magic words. And then she just robotically in a trance state walks out of work and goes home. (laughs) So immediately we know that that Tom Tom, there's something up with him. Like he's got powers. Yeah, this is... um yeah, Tom Tom is a is a, is a magical child, mm-hmm. and uh, I like Tom Tom. Tom Tom has a cool energy about him. Yeah. Uh, whenever he's on, he seems in, in control the whole time. He's never really in peril in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Oh, are you kind of of the Gene Siskel school that you don't like it when a movie puts a child in danger? I not necessarily, but I do find. In some films, the ch- a child is put in danger in a way that the acting is a little too real. Uh, oh yeah, yeah I don't yeah. know, and not in a way that it dis- that I'm like completely like taken out of the viewing experience per se. Mm-hmm. But I have seen p- 
particularly some Italian horror films where I'm like, oh man, I think that child was really terrified. Oh yeah, and, uh, and I don't know, I just really like Tam Tam here, and I, I didn't want I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. But luckily, he's super chill. He's not worried about it, so yeah. I'm not gonna be worried about it either. Yeah, he never seems upset a single bit in this movie. He he is like amazingly calm. He he is clearly mastered some some techniques of emotional control, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, immediately after Barbara Gibson leaves the institute, there's just a stormtrooper attack. They wander through, blasting everything that moves. They kill everybody, and they steal some MacGuffin from inside the vault at the Institute that is called the Capitron. And I was just thinking, like, why does this sound so familiar? Because I thought on a previous episode of Weird House Cinema, we have discussed a MacGuffin from a movie that sounded like the dental device called a Cavitron. Mm, It's not ringing a bell. I mean, Capitron sounds like it should be uh, some sort of synthesizer. Mm-hmm. From the the late 1970s, but right. uh, but it's not. And Ennio Morricone on the Capitron. <laughs> but the lead stormtrooper has to go back and report to Barth Quater that uh, that Barbara Gibson was not at the Institute when they arrived. And then Barth Quater punishes him. Uh, he's like, you are stripped of your privileges for 100 days. And then I was like, ooh, what are these privileges? We're going to learn something about stormtrooper society. What special privileges do they get? And what is the punishment when they're stripped of them? But then nothing. We never learn yeah. what that means. Like, is it are they toilet privileges? Or is <laughs> yeah. it... Or is it something like really nice, like you don't get to to play the Xbox or something that right. is there for the stormtroopers? You know, I'm yeah. not sure how much this hurt him. Clearly, it was not the stormtroopers' fault that Barbara Gibson was not at the institute. Uh, right. Tom Tom got ahead of them, and he had no way of controlling that. But I think this is to show us that Lord Grawl is unfair. Like he doesn't care if the the reason you failed was actually your fault. He'll take away your privileges for a hundred days anyway. Yeah, he's he's a terrible boss. So then we go back to the Barbara Gibson and and Tom Tom house, and Tom Tom is just wiping the floor with her. It's some kind of strategy game. It looks like it's mm-hmm. Battleship or something uh, or chess uh, on a computer in some way. And they talk about how even the computer can't beat him. And then she's like, where do you come from? And he says, I come from a place far, far away where uh, I've learned very much. And my real name means Great Ocean of Wisdom. And so it is... Uh, so he he's not like her child. He is her pupil. I think she's a teacher and she's teaching him. But what is she teaching him? He already appears to know everything. Yeah, he is a, an all-powerful space child. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that's basically all you need to know about it. And honestly, the movie gives us very little else in the way of answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we meet some more characters. We're going to get into the politics of this world. So we meet a guy named Great Brother. Uh, which is pretty close to Big Brother, but they say he's mm-hmm. the leader of the Utopian Order of Earth. Um, and you know, an alternate way of reading this film is that actually Earth is not a utopia; it is an Orwellian nightmare state under the control of Great Brother. And the movie is just ha- like it happens to be written by interparty members that are loyal to Great Brother, and in fact, Lord Grawl is the good guy. He's like the uh, he's being held up as the Emmanuel Goldstein of this world. <laughs> So that all of our heroes can have a ha- have a two minutes hate against him, uh, but no. We, instead, we meet Great Brother, and he's like uh, he's chatting with this young guy named Nick, who is some kind of soldier in Metropolis. I think he's the young hunk of the movie. He's supposed to be Han Solo, basically, but uh, far less interesting, dopier and mopier, with longer curly hair. And they talk about the theft of the Capitron device. Great Brother says, if word gets out, there will be a panic. 
Why would that be? Well, he explains. He says, It was the discovery of the most ingenious scientist that Metropolis has had in this century, Dr. Craspin. It has the power to modify a man's cell structure and transmute him into some sort of monstrosity with superhuman powers. And so Nick asks, well, why was the Institute creating a monstrosity beam? And Great Brother says, uh, I don't remember exactly what he said. I mean, basically, it seems like, well, Craspin had tenure. You know, he could yeah. do what he wanted. But somebody sniffed him out. The person who learned what he was doing was dun -da -da -da, Barbara Gibson. Uh. And once Barbara Gibson got on his trail, everybody found out his evil plans and he was arrested uh, because she tattled to big brother and <laughs> the Capitron was confiscated, but now it's been stolen and nobody knows where, where Dr. Craspin is. So there's definitely trouble afoot. And so Nick, Nick is given a mission. Big Brother tells him, uh, you need to go find Barbara Gibson. So you, uh, I think he calls her Miss Gibson. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can find Craspin and save the planet. And this part really made – I laughed out loud here because there's no refusing the call. There's no Luke saying, you know, it's so far away from here. What can I do? No Han Solo saying, you know, that's not bravery, kid. It's more like suicide. Nick just says like, all right, boss. <laughs> Yeah, and this brings this brings us back to some of the points we're making about about Star Wars copies and Star Wars ripoffs. They 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 certainly go for the aesthetics. They go for these elements like desert planets and stormtroopers and laser guns. Maybe if they have the budget for it, they'll throw in some droids and some aliens. Mm -hmm. But the thing that they never copy is they never copy the hero's journey. They never get into the the mythological uh, underpinnings that were that are so central to Lucas's creation. So there's there's never the hero with a thousand faces. There's never any connection to the Ur myth. You know, um, that's always what is missing. Yeah, the ripping off is of the most superficial elements. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, that's a, if you if you just get those superficial elements, yeah, you don't have Star Wars because one of the things that always worked in the Star Wars films is that you had that that mythological skeleton to the thing that yeah. was propelling things along. Oh yeah, totally. But hey, I know a way to fix the hollowness of this story, which is introduce Richard Keel and a cute robot. Finally. So that's, that's immediately what happens next. And, and thank God we got here because up to this point, the movie is rather dull. Yeah, I was having a very hard time paying attention to anything in this film until finally Richard Keel and the robot dog show up. And then suddenly it, it's kind of interesting. And I'm like, OK, mm -hmm. I can I'm beginning to see where we're going here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Richard Keel is cruising in space in his spaceship and he encounters some kind of problem. I think he's trying to contact Metropolis. They're not getting back to him. His ship's breaking down. Uh, oh, his character's name is Golob, G-O-L-O-B. Mm -hmm. And he's just generally having a hard time. And then we see him take out his frustrations on his adorable robot dog, Kip. He's like, Kip, uh, I'm mad at you. But then he immediately feels bad about it. And and Kip is just the cutest thing. Th this movie succeeds. I mean, Kip is not as uh, effectively emotional as the droids in Star Wars are. It doesn't have as much personality as R2-D2. But because they went with with robot dog instead of just general robot it gets automatic mileage out of dog similarities yeah and it it, it is it is very cute in a kind of i don't know kind of analog way you know yeah, it's yeah. like this it's a dog made out of keyboard parts and stuff yeah uh, so I, I enjoyed all the scenes involving uh richard keel's character and the robot dog me too and i laughed out loud when the robot dog extended its telescoping antenna tail and wagged it <laughs> 
But I feel like this is sort of where the movie really picks up when we when mm-hmm. we meet Richard Keel and when we start uh, meeting more of the bad guys. So so yeah, Richard Keel is fun. The robot dog is great, and so they're flying around in space. Uh, but then we cut to the evil enemy base on a planet called Planet Noxon, which <laughs> outside looks exactly the same as the other planet. It's just a desert. Yeah, I, I when I watched it, I thought they said Nixon. So I was like, the planet Nixon, that's great. That's a perfect evil planet for the, the late 1970s. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty close. But here we meet another villain. It's Barbara Bach. And the first thing you will notice about her is that she's wearing an absolutely astounding wig. It's kind of hair metal, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's also something else that you've just never seen on a human. The wig she's wearing is at the same time hair and a hood and a helmet. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting looking. But, you know, she's she's a very stylish lady. She's uh, you know, she's able to pull it off somehow. Yeah. Somehow this doesn't look completely goofy on her. Uh so like the front of this hair looks like the McDonald's arches, like it goes up mm-hmm. on each side and then comes down and it's kind of fluffy in the front which makes it look like a, you know, fur-lined hood on a jacket. But then behind that, yeah. the hair suddenly turns rigid and flat, and it's like a Darth Vader helmet on the back, of, but it's hair. Yeah. And she's wearing a really funny dress with, like, a riveted metal neckline. All the bad guys in this wear stuff with riveted metal hems on it. And it's pretty much immediately clear that what we're dealing with with Barbara Bach here is a space bathery. Because we, we get her and she's meeting with Dr. Craspin, uh, who's, remember, the uh, the scientist who made the Capitron who escaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they're doing when we first meet them is they put some poor woman into a plastic iron maiden that jabs her with a million hypodermic needles and it sucks out her life force. And Barbara Bach is just like, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a horrific scene. Uh, it's also the only scene, like the, the scene that that has any nudity in it, because the the woman they put into oh. the Iron Maiden uh, is nude. Yeah, it's very strange because otherwise this could be a kids' movie. But then there's just yeah. one scene, like ten seconds long, that has nudity and brutal violence. And then if you were to just remove those ten seconds, it's a kids' movie. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's totally <laughs> weird that we suddenly go to this place and then we and then we're back into into everything that's that's come before totally but so i think we we figure out what's going on here is that they are extracting the fluids uh, like it's like elizabeth bathory you know they're draining Mm -hmm. the liquids out of the local peasant girls so that uh lady agatha here played by barbara bach can can use the this life force of these other women to stay young forever but dr craspin oh and this is a system that has been designed by dr craspin much to barbara bach's liking uh but he has to warn her he says science may have conquered age but it will never succeed in conquering death uh and for some Mm. reason she's mad at him i don't remember why she starts kind of sniping at him but then craspin is very smooth at deflecting her her frustrations uh he says don't you trust me lady agatha don't i give you daily doses you haven't aged one minute since you've been here and i thought would you normally notice having aged one minute during the early parts of this film i would say yes you (laughs) definitely feel those minutes go by but yeah, they're talking about it like uh, like people can normally look at Barbara Bach and say like, "Ooh, you've really aged one minute since I saw you one minute ago." Uh, but she she says to Doctor Craspin, "I trust no one, and you know it." So this is clearly just a fully transactional relationship. 
And then, uh, oh, the next thing is Lord Grawl. Remember, uh, Barth Quader arrives, and we realize mm-hmm. that Lord Grawl and Lady Agatha are an item. They they are together. And when he arrives and meets Lady Agatha uh, and, and Craspin, he's like, wow, you are so beautiful. I be- you have not aged one minute. <laughs> And of course, it's especially hilarious because he's still wearing the face belts. Yeah, yeah. This never comes off. He never takes off this helmet. Yeah, so the face belts are always fully on, even in scenes where it looks like he and he and Barbara Bach are about to like ha- have some romance. The face belts are just right right in the way. Um, and I I think I, you know I was thinking about this and I was like, Star Wars made a smart decision by keeping Darth Vader at least post his vadering uh basically asexual because if darth vader was trying to like have a dating life while he was building the death star i think that would not have added the right kind of depth to the film but here we get to see their darth vader's love life he and lady agatha it seems like they're going to be very happy together though in a way like you know <laughs> she uh she's worried about aging one minute and uh-huh. uh and, and and absorbs the liquids of um of, of slaughtered peasants uh, so that she can live longer. He is uh, a cold, emotionless man inside of a face shackle that... <laughs> so, yeah, they seem perfect for each other. Oh, but here we learn about the the plan that's driving the plot of the movie. So we learn that Dr. Craspin is going to create for Lord Grawl and Lady Agatha an army of humanoids that will be indestructible human robots. Again, this is another one of those movies where they uh, they pronounce it robot. And then pretty much right after this, uh, Dr. Craspin notices he, – he like looks on a telescreen and he sees Richard Keel zooming around in space nearby. You know, he's flying a spaceship outside the mm-hmm. Star Destroyer. And uh, Crasp, or outside, I guess they're at the the base on Noxon at this point. And Craspin sees him on this TV, and he's like, "Oh, that guy, that guy! I want to turn him into an indestructible <laughs> human robot. That's the guy I'm going to humanoid." So he use he like messes with some switches on a panel to make Richard Keel crash land his ship on this planet. And then they like he has some t- another cute scene interacting with the dog, and then he's just basically hit with a, a, a missile. That just blows his ship up, right? Yeah, and yeah. transforms him into a humanoid. Right. So he gets humanoided by a missile from space. It's very Beast of Yucca Flats because he mm-hmm. pops up and suddenly his beard is gone. Like the moment <laughs> yep. he's humanoided, he is now clean shaven. And let's see, other transformation elements. He can no longer talk. He grunts. <laughs> yeah, he grunts and groans a lot. Just rages around, waving his arms. Uh, immediately some soldiers show up to shoot at him and it does nothing. And he tosses them around like sacks of flour mm-hmm. and uh, Craspin's dudes capture the rage Golob by knocking him out with uh, what Craspin calls a very special narcotic gas. And then they take him back to the base and say, okay, we can control him now because we put an implant on his head. Yeah. There's this kind of third eye jewelry thing that they put on him and, uh, and that controls him. Right, and Craspin says to Grawl, in seven days, Metropolis will be populated by an army of humanoids at your command. Oh, and we skipped over one thing that I thought was really funny because there's like a 
there's like an interrupted romance scene between Barbara Brock and, and Lord Grawl here. Uh, they're like in a room together and, uh, and Lady Agatha says to him, it is a great honor for me to be loved by the future ruler of Metropolis and the entire galaxy. And it is the most absolutely flat line delivery I've ever heard. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh but then uh, Lord Grawl's like, so you just want my power. And she's like, only if I can share it with you. And I think they're about to kiss, but I don't know how they would kiss because his face belts are in the way yeah and then immediately uh uh dr craspin like interrupts them by coming on the telescreen on the wall and he's like hey what's up i've got you a humanoid <laughs> <laughs> he's so tall let's turn him in it, yeah it is stupid too because it's like okay he can only he's directly he's a like a mindless killing machine that's directly controlled by the the the, the implant on his head mm-hmm. and yet he's going to command an army uh right like what how's this work yeah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but so they give a mission to uh, the now humanoided Golob. They send him on a hit job to kill Great Brother. Remember Big Brother from earlier in Metropolis. And uh, and Lord Grawl says to him, you will not stop until my brother is crushed to a pulp at your feet. Uh, so they send him into this place, the city that looks like in the establishing shots, it looks like when people make those aluminum casts of ant colony tunnels. Yeah. Um, and it looks pretty interesting, and it reminds me of another thing that you see in in Star Wars um, uh, ripoff movies, is that you, certainly if you can create an alien city, uh, you know, like this, uh, that's great. But also, if you can shoot as many like late seventies futuristic bits of uh, architecture, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. uh, future shot kind of architecture, yeah, uh, that also is a great idea. And they do that in this film. There's some really interesting architectural choices that they use as backdrops at times. I think there are a lot of public library buildings that end yeah. up in these sci-fi movies because I don't know, you know, they they've got some weird-looking staircase. Yeah, any oh yeah, if you can get a weird-looking staircase, an interesting hotel atrium, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then yeah, you've got to put it in your movie. So they send Richard Keel into the city of Metropolis again. I think the planet is Metropolis and the city is Metropolis. And the guards try to stop him, but of course, nothing's going to stop him. He's a humanoid. So mm-hmm. they shoot him with lasers. It doesn't do anything. He throws him on the ground. Uh, the, the palace guards are being commanded by, again, Nick, Nick, the guy from earlier. And uh, the, the lasers have no effect. And Golob is very angry. Yeah, he's basically a rampaging Frankenstein in all of this. Yeah, he, and throwing people on the ground. Laser bad. Yeah. Laser bad, yeah. And uh, so Nick goes to talk to Great Brother, and he says, Great Brother, you must leave the building at once. There's some sort of mutant outside. <laughs> <laughs> and so they evacuate Great Brother. And Golob, oh, then Golob hijacks a land speeder, just like Luke has in mm-hmm. the first Star Wars movie, to go to the Institute from earlier because somehow Craspin knows that's where Great Brother has been evacuated to. And then he busts in there and they try to set a trap for him where they're going to crush Golob in a hydraulic press, but that doesn't work because he's yep. too strong for too it. Strong. He just pushes it right back up. And then there's an interesting moment where Golob has a chance to smash Great Brother. Like, he's got him right there. He breaks through the traps and all that. But Craspin, for some reason, gets greedy with his personal grudge. And he's like, no, don't kill Great Brother yet. Go kill Barbara Gibson first. (laughs) Yeah, Craspin cares more about killing Barbara Gibson than anyone else in this movie cares about anything. Yes, and it's all for revenge because Barbara Gibson uncovered his illicit activities at the Institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's like, you can't can't do Great Brother until you do my revenge mission first. 
Uh, so Golob then goes to Barbara Gibson's house and there's a big chase scene where he's running around smashing through walls and you think he's going to kill uh, Curry and Clary. But instead, it's Tom Tom to the rescue. Tom Tom yep. is there and he uses some kind of psychic powers on Golob to calm him, stop the raging, stop the hulking out. And they sort of kneel down together. And Tom Tom says to him, may your essence return to your body. Let me reach into your heart and into your soul. And it works. Yeah. And it's kind of sweet. I don't know. I kind of like the energy of this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then Corrine Clary, she uh, – this is Barbara Gibson. She runs out into the desert because I think she doesn't realize that Tom Tom has successfully uh, tamed the beast. And she is ambushed by stormtroopers. But then we get this really weird sequence where – the stormtroopers that are about to kill her are instead shot with like plastic neon arrows by these two mimes in Obi-Wan Kenobi robes that are Tom Tom's friends from another dimension. He says they're foreign travelers. Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of like space elves. Yeah. Like not not in any like kind of like Warhammer sense, but like in like they're just sort of like fantasy elves. Yeah. Very strange. They they come and go a lot in the movie. They appear at random times to aid Tom Tom by shooting people with bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. uh, the movie has a lot of psychic powers and clairvoyance. Uh, and so Tom Tom and Golob then use psychic powers to reveal the location of Lord Grawl and Craspin. They find out they're on Noxon. And then uh, when Barbara goes to reveal this to the authorities, she gets kidnapped, kidnapped by a spaceship and taken mm -hmm. to the evil planet Noxon, leaving Golob along with Tom Tom. And uh, of course, Barbara is taken to Lord Grawl and she says with, again, absolutely flat delivery. It's like, great brother will crush you like a worm. And she's now Princess Leia from the original Star Wars. She's held prisoner on the Death Star. And now we're we're toward the end of the movie, but we finally kick into very familiar original Star Wars territory, right? It's a rescue mission to Lord Grawl's star base, and Nick has to go, I guess, because, I don't know, he's the, he's the young, hunky guy. And he says, well, I'm going to go on a single commando raid, because that has the best chance of success. I don't know why that would have the best chance of success. Why don't they send an entire army? Don't they have one? They're bloated by peace, right? Yeah, that's right. They're bloated by peace. Lord Grawl was right. Uh, so he's going to go on a mission to rescue Barbara Gibson and recover the Capitron. And then uh, this part made me laugh out loud. Uh, Golob goes up to Great Brother and he's like, go, Lob, go. Barbara, my friend. <laughs> and so he's sort of regained some ability to speak, but not the full ability to speak. He can only talk in the, the caveman monosyllable thing. Oh, and then, of course, Tom Tom comes along. He he sneaks onto the ship. Uh, so, like, Nick and, and, and uh, Golob are, are flying to the base, and Tom Tom just shows up. And uh, what does Nick say to him? He's like, are you, are you out of your space dimensions or something? <laughs> something like that. It gets, yeah. it gets very Star Wars-y for a little bit here, and just Star Wars stuff happens. Yeah. Uh, but it's still worth sticking with because there's a lot of cool stuff at the end. Yes, yes, yes. So there's a space dog fight on the way there where they get attacked by ships. And this is, again, one of those like blatant ripoff scenes. It's just a direct copy of the scene in Star Wars where uh, Luke and Han go into the ball turret guns on the Millennium Falcon and fight off the TIE fighters. It's a direct ripoff of that. Um, except here, instead of Luke and Han, it is Nick, the, the beloved, lovable Nick. I did like in the scene, though, how Golob nods approvingly every time Nick destroys an enemy fighter. He just <laughs> looks at Tom Tom and he's like, yep. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but then Nick gets knocked out and they crash land on planet Noxon, which again looks exactly like Metropolis. It's the same desert. And they get a reunion with Kip the Robo Dog, which is, uh, again, truly very cute. Yeah, this this relationship is the heart and soul of this motion picture. Right. So they have to infiltrate the base. Uh, so you've got Richard Keel and Nick and Tom Tom and now Kip the Robot Dog. They're all working together. They infiltrate the bad guy ba- base by having Kip the Robot uh, distract the guards and then they all just run in the door. <laughs> um, <laughs> and their method for finding Barbara Gibson in the secret Grawl lair is that Golob says to the robot dog, Barbara, and then somehow the dog leads them to her. I don't. I don't know how that works. Yeah. It's a dog, I guess. It just it can lead people to places. That's how it works in in uh, TV shows. I have several questions about the fighting that starts here. So they have to fight some stormtroopers along the way and a lot of this is hand-to-hand fighting with like Nick doing wrestling moves on stormtroopers. Why are they having Nick do the fighting? Isn't Golob indestructible at this point? Shouldn't they let him do the fighting? They should, because he certainly does a lot of the the melee combat before and afterwards. Yeah, uh, doing all sorts of fun giant moves. You know, throwing guys around. At one point, he does this this wonderful number where he grabs a guy and like just pounds his head into the ceiling several times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet he never does a move that I was anticipating. The one where you come up behind two stormtroopers and you grab their heads and you knock them together like coconut. Yeah, don't, yeah, that seems yeah. like that would be just a that's just a go to giant move, and it doesn't happen. That's that's money left on the table. Total that's my missed, number one complaint yeah. about this movie. Huge missed opportunity. Uh, but then, meanwhile, of course, we got to have some some impending peril. So uh, we find out that Doctor Craspin is going to drain Barbara Gibson with the Iron Maiden of Needles to create the most potent dose of serum yet for Barbara Bach. Mm. And so she's in the setup and they got the needles going in for her. But then the heroes bust in to rescue her. And Dr. Craspin looks so betrayed in this scene when when Golob shows back up and now he's working for the good guys. Uh, he says, the humanoids fighting for them. It's not possible. And he seems really <laughs> hurt. Again, best actor in the movie. Um, yeah. And, 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 it's, and, the, and the bar is very low. Uh, you know, so when uh, when Arthur Kennedy's busting out those uh, those emotions, like you feel them extra hard. You're like, what is this? Yeah. What am I watching here? Uh, so the the bad guys have to run out of the room and escape while they res- while the good guys rescue uh, Barbara Gibson. But Lady Agatha is distraught about this because she needs her serum. She's repeatedly mm-hmm. saying, like, I need my serum immediately. Uh, if I don't get it, I might age one minute. And then there is a hallway blaster fight that, again, is ripped straight out of Star Wars. It's just the scene from Cell Block AA-23. Mm-hmm. And then this evolves into a big blaster fight in a spaceship hangar. Uh, there's a great moment in this fight where Kip, the robot dog, defeats some stormtroopers by peeing on the floor. <laughs> and then they slip on it and fall over. That's good. At first, Golob is defeating stormtroopers by, like, knocking them on the ground, but then he gets a laser gun, and he really tears up the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this big action scene is cheap, but it's pretty fun. Yeah, it is. I enjoyed this one a lot. And again, this is where you have uh, Golob, like, uh, smashing people's heads into the ceiling and so forth. Yeah. And so when this fight is going on, the bad guys are not doing so hot. Like I said with Dr. Craspin a minute ago, he sounds so hurt. Like, the bad guys really seem 
you start kind of feeling bad for them because Lady Agatha is just clawing at the walls. She's like, I need my serum. Mm-hmm. And then Lord Grawl issues the most forlorn and defeated order to kill them that I've ever heard. Do you remember this part where he says, like, kill them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you th- kill them or shoot them is, is a frequent order given by yeah. um by, by villains, but generally there's a certain amount of whimsy or yeah. or or evil to it. I mean, I always come back to the excellent Ronald Lacey and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, where he goes, shoot them, shoot them both. Yeah, you know, yeah. like like that's such great delivery. And yeah, uh-huh. Grawl is just he. I don't I don't think he believes what he's saying. He sounds like he knows he's lost. He's just yeah. he's just begging. He's like, kill them. <laughs> And then we get maybe my favorite special effect in this movie. Yeah, that's right. Because time has run out for Lady, Lady Agatha. Yeah. Um, she aged one minute. Oh no! She aged that one minute. That was a, that was the last minute, I guess. Uh, yeah. So she ages that one minute, and then she just completely. It's kind of a rapid aging effect, kind of a melting effect, but not done, you know, n- nearly anywhere near uh, as well as what you would see in, say, Raiders of the Lost Ark or no. um, the. Um, the third one, um, The Last Crusade, where we right. had a rapid aging sequence that was pretty great. Uh, this is neither of those. It's more of a frame-by-frame frame effect, similar mm. to some early werewolf transformation sequences you see in pictures. But it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, she turns into a rotten skeleton. Yeah. So that was fun. I, it was, that's worth hanging in there for. Now, there's a bunch of other fighting stuff that happens at one point in the fight. Uh, Tom Tom and his archer mimes show up again to save the day. They shoot the neon arrows at the bad guys while Tom Tom does psychic stuff. And then there's a part that I thought was very funny. There was a brief hand-to-hand fight between Nick and Lord Grawl. So <laughs> can you imagine if Star Wars had a scene where Han Solo and Darth Vader were just punching and kicking each other? <laughs> But eventually in the scene, Lord Grawl whips out his secret weapon, which is laser fingers. This is not yep. a power that we knew he had. It just appears out of nowhere. And uh, he starts blasting his laser fingers at uh, at Nick. But eventually, even Lord Grawl is no match for Golob the humanoid. Golob bear hugs him, and then he disintegrates inside his suit. Yeah, this is kind of weird, kind of like a green screen effect. Mm-hmm. And then the suit is empty. Grawl is defeated. And, of course, the heroes escape the base as it is exploding. And then you got the problem of the Capitron, this thing that's supposed to detonate and create a bunch of other humanoids like Golob. And Golob decides he's going to sacrifice himself by detonating the Capitron under a lake. So he grabs it. He sort of falls on a grenade, but underwater. uh, And they think he's dead. But then Richard Keel pops back up out of the water and somehow he has his beard back. It has Ah. unhumanoided him. To fall on the grenade of the Capitron. Yes, it's uh, it's pretty great. And he's like, like he doesn't really have any memory of what happened. Because uh, she's like, you look great in a beard. And he's like, I've always had a beard. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful yeah. moment. Yeah. And then we, we get an absolutely bizarre twist ending that I have no idea how to explain. But we find out that Tom Tom has got to sail off into the sunset uh, because he explains that he is from another place called... Tibet. Mm-hmm. I assume that is supposed to refer to Tibet, the place on Earth. And so you'd think that this is, oh, well, maybe this is like a, I don't know, uh, like one of those sci-fi endings where, oh, actually Earth is here and he's from Earth and this is somewhere else. But 
it, that doesn't make sense because they tell us that Metropolis is Earth. So it would not make sense to say that, oh, Tom Tom was from Earth all along, this faraway place. Is it implied that so I don't, is he he's supposed from to Tibet be a, in the past? Or did I yeah, make that up in my head? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. That I, don't, I was like, is he a time traveler from the past? That is the only thing that really seems to make sense to me. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. I have no answers. Um, but I, I did really like this this ending because, again, it feels yeah. very Boards of Canada-esque. Yeah. It feels like we're just straight up teleporting into the hexagon sun here because we yes. have that analog. It's like this analog, dreamy, summer day, psychedelic vibe, the sense of everything's going to be okay because you have the boy Tom Tom saying all these positive things while the Morricone dream twinkle music goes on in the background and the glowing cosmic barge floats into the movie from the Grey Havens or Tibet or wherever. And uh, yeah, it was, it's <laughs> yeah. a good landing for the film. I agree. The end is just a slow cruise into the orange. <laughs> Feels good. Feels warm. Yeah, it, you do feel warm at the end. Oh, and we get some ending narration, too, that was really funny. It said, uh, once again, planet Earth had narrowly escaped disaster. Was there another time? Uh, once again, it had found in itself the intelligence, the insight, and the strength to repel a mortal enemy. Once again, man was to live at peace in the galaxy. Awesome. They wrapped it up. Yeah, I guess. Yo, okay. Star Wars wasn't able to do that. Like Star Wars, <laughs> they had to come back in subsequent films to flesh everything out. This film did it in one picture. That That's a good point. Yeah. No, yeah. no additional storytelling required. <laughs> Everybody lived happily ever after. Yes. So, um, oh, what to say? Uh, I guess in the end, I found this to be an enjoyable viewing experience, though Mm -hmm. I did have to force myself to keep watching through like the first 10 minutes or so. Yeah. And then and then there was certainly a kind of a potential dropout period later on. So uh, I would say that if you're if you're tempted to watch this film, um, you know, stick with it or feel free to skip ahead a little bit because, mm. you know, honestly, you're not going to miss much. I, I would say this one is very different from Message from Space in that they're both Star Wars ripoffs. But Message from Space, I think I already said this earlier, but it, it has a lot more aesthetic uniqueness and interest to it, like a lot more different colors and sets and costumes and alien designs and things. And it goes a lot more different places with the plot. Like in many ways, Message from Space was kind of hard to follow because a lot of strange yeah. things happen in it. This movie is, I would say, the opposite end of the spectrum. Is It is very simple plot, very straightforward. You might even want to fast forward some parts, but enjoyable in a similar way, ultimately. Yeah, and, and worth it, definitely, for, for Richard Keel and for Arthur Kennedy, both of whom are very, uh, very uh, entertaining in this film. Yeah. Now, you're probably wondering, well, where can I watch it? Um, it's been on DVD before. I'm sure you can probably land it on DVD if you look around in the right place, but I could not find a legit streaming source for it right now. I don't know. It it might be on Tubi, but it's definitely been on YouTube. Like one of the, the, the places where it's hosted on YouTube, it's been up since 2015 uh, and nobody's bothered to take it down. It's not pristine quality. I feel like you could probably get a better quality uh, version of this if you had a, like a legit DVD or something, but, um, but it's still watchable. Somebody get us that 4K humanoid. Yeah, yeah, the 4K restoration. I want to see it. I do, too. There's several things I need more detail on, one of which is Barber Box wig. That I, mm-hmm. I need to see the, the fine grains and details of the hair that's going on there the, the, and where the seams are. That's very important. 
Yeah, it was impressive costume. Oh, yeah, I will say overall, like the costumes and sets and miniatures, like everything looks pretty good. Some of the effects are a little iffy, I guess. But yeah. for the most part, everything looks pretty good. It's not Star Wars, uh, A New Hope quality, but it's it's still pretty good. So it is the kind of film that would benefit from like a clearer uh, restoration, I think. Maybe not 4K. Don't bring it up too. Don't bring it, bring it up into too high a detail. But, um, you know, it's it's an interesting film to look no. at. Put it in 4K. Put it in 8K. I want to see every <laughs> molecule of this movie. <laughs> um, of course, that is a real concern with some of these restorations we've seen, though, oh, is yeah. that you, you you restore it a bit too much and you begin to see too many of the cracks. You see too yeah. many of the wires and, and so forth. And in some cases, that has to then be digitally removed. Yeah, so, effects that used to look good don't look good anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes not even effects, just, uh, you know, uh, the, the colors and, and uh, I don't know what you'd always call it, maybe the color grading and, and certain things about the film quality of the movie. A uh, classic example that I recall is that uh, the movie Predator, you know, the sci-fi mm-hmm. action movie Schwarzenegger, it looks good on VHS tape. I think it even looked good on the first DVD that came out. But I, I recall at some point there was a Blu-ray of it and it was just like, oh, this is not right. It looked like waxy. Huh. Interesting. And I think sometimes it happens. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, I think we're going to go ahead and close this episode out here, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on this movie, Star Wars in general, but certainly other Star Wars ripoffs. What are your favorite Star Wars ripoffs? Um, what do you think about the aesthetic qualities of Star Wars that tend to be reflected in these films? Uh, all of that's fair game. Let us know. And uh, next week, I believe the plan is that we will we will continue and we'll finish our uh, our trilogy of 70s Florida movies. So we'll still be in the 1970s next time in Weird Al Cinema, but we'll be looking at uh, the film Shockwaves, which interestingly enough has um, a Star Wars actor in it. It has Peter Cushing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you want to okay. watch ahead, here's a rare, um, a, a rare in-episode advance on the next episode. I haven't seen this one, but I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you will find this every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, We're primarily a science podcast, so our core episodes on Tuesday and Thursday are going to be science and culture-based. On Mondays, we do a little bit of listener mail about any and everything that we're talking about. And on Wednesdays, unless we're preempted, we do an artifact episode with uh, reruns on the weekends. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.